Thank you, Ed, for leading us um, joyfully, graciously, and reflecting uh, the, the essence of the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I just want to say good morning to all of you that are here, and welcome. If you're visiting with us, we certainly are glad that you're here. Um, it is our habit and practice to work our way through a book of the Bible. Uh, we trust that the Word of God um, is relevant. We know that it is. We just need to allow it to be relevant, and we need to see how that fleshes out. And so we trust that the Word of God has things for us, and especially um, today, because we are in Exodus chapter 26 and 27. So um, the rest of you guys know what that means, right? That means we, we're going to read this whole section because we want to hear it. Uh, in particular, because this is often one of those sections you just kind of like, oh, this is too tedious and long. I'm just going to breeze through it or I'm going to skip. And um, God has revealed his truth, and we want to take time to actually read it this morning. And so uh, I would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 26 and stand with me, and we're going to read this passage together. Exodus chapter 26. And of course, we'll be, begin at verse, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits and all the curtains shall be this the same size, five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to another, or one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the uh, first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. 11 curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtains uh, that is uh, outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtains that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the, the, the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on the side uh, and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for all the tabernacle of acacia wood, the 
cubits shall be the length of the frame and the cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side and 40 bases of silver. You shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for, uh, for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall... Uh, form the two corners. There shall, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for, for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold and four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you uh, the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the, for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns for fine twine linen embroidered with needlework, and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on the four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive the ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make its, uh, all its utensils of bronze. You shall make for it a grating of a network of bronze, and on the, uh, on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards." As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court, 
shall have hangings of fine twine linen, 100 cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars, and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for it, its length on the north side, there shall be hangings of 100 cubits long, its pillars uh, 20, and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets should be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for, for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the, the court on the front uh, to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars on the three bases. On the other side of the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court... There shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. And the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits and the breadth 50 and the height 50 cubits with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you, um, Lord, for the detail of your revealed will. Lord, you have something specific in mind as you're breathing out these instructions through Moses to your people. And Lord, as we are the the distant recipients of this truth, Lord, help us not just to think of this text as something disconnected to our awareness of who you are and a reflection of your character and will. But Lord, help us be convinced that you are still at work in teaching us and guiding us through this text. And so, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? Lord, what we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? And I ask, Lord, especially today, that you would give me wisdom to be your mouthpiece so that this text of Scripture, Lord, will will resonate in our hearts in such a way that it draws us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but on the odd occasion, I enjoy going camping. I enjoy being outside, enjoying the the beautiful California scenery. Now, if you've grown up here in California, you don't realize how good you have it. Uh, I interacted with J.D. Bautista, for those of you who don't know him, he was an associate pastor of ours for like six years, and he's now in Austria uh, serving in a church there, and he's coming back this summer, and he says, we're going to be there for a bit, but we're going to take two weeks, and we're going to go somewhere by the beach, because they miss the beach, right? I mean, we, we, we just take it for granted. There's so much beauty, and when you get out and camping, it's wonderful. It's nice just to go and, and read a book and sit around the fire with family and friends and talk until the wee hours of the night and look up at the stars and uh, just being away from it all for a while. It's just a wonderful thing. But then there's what comes with camping. 
putting up a tent, blowing up air mattresses, dealing with the bugs, just that feeling dirty all the time, not sleeping well, always feeling cold, and just all the work that goes into prepare to go camping. And then all the work that needs to take place when you return from going camping. See, camping is working on vacation when you're supposed to be relaxing on vacation. Now, if you have no home and all you have is a tent and some basic utensils and a sleeping bag and a fire and some basic food and water, quite frankly, you are thankful if that's all you have. And that is where we find Israel right now in this text. At this point, they are at the foot of the mountain. And as she has journeyed out of bondage uh, in Egypt, she's wandered around the wilderness, and here she is encamped at the bottom of Mount Sinai. She has no permanent home yet. They've heard from God. He's revealed his ten words, we know as the Ten Commandments, followed by the, uh, the case law in the Book of the Covenant that we took a, a number of weeks to walk through. And with the help of Moses, their mediator, they have gathered together at the bottom of this mountain and they have agreed to God's covenant with them verbally. They also ratified that covenant through a sacrifice and they sealed it with the blood of that sacrifice when Moses splashed the blood on them and on the altar. See, this God has enabled a way for them to enter and to interact with him. And he invites them to fellowship with him through the blood of sacrifice. And now this same God the creator of the universe, begins to give instructions about a tabernacle because he wants to dwell in their midst. And if you remember last week, we looked at chapter 25 where we saw God invite Israel to give out of their abundance the materials needed for the tabernacle as well as to instruct them to follow his pattern. And then in the heart of the tabernacle, they were to place the Ark of the Covenant, and it reminded Israel of God's purity and holiness. It was a box where the testimony of of the Lord was kept, and the mercy seat was on top of it, overshadowed by these two cherubim. And it was to, to be an earthly throne of God. And if you also remember, outside of the Holy of Holies, There was a table of presence where 12 loaves and two stacks of six sat representing the 12 tribes. And they were offered every week and they reminded Israel of God's continual provision for his people and pointed to the fact ultimately that Jesus is the bread of life. And then we also looked at the golden lampstand, if you remember, its stem and six branches made of gold and flowers and leaves Uh, topped off with these seven lamps, all to be a reminder of God's ongoing presence and also to point to Jesus as the light of the world. Now, as we come to chapters 26 and 27, we're confronted with three other objects, the tabernacle, 
the altar, and the courtyard. You might even say three areas or objects. In chapter 26, as we read, it's all about how the tabernacle is going to be constructed. In chapters 27, we have uh, this description of the altar of sacrifice as well as the court. So this whole section is about God coming to make himself known through the building of the tabernacle and its furniture. And today, we want to notice three more applicational truths that God is revealing to us through this this pop-up book description of his tabernacle. God, first of all here, we're going to see is he reveals the the necessary flow of worship through the tabernacle and its furniture. And I just want to say at the beginning here, God is not just kind of giving us these, these details just to kind of bore us. He is teaching Israel and he's teaching us about the flow of worship. In other words, how do we come and worship him rightly? Now hear this, God wants to be known rightly so that he can be worshipped properly. Let me say that again, God wants to be known rightly so that he can be worshipped properly. If we just try and worship God without Seeing what he says, we're not going to worship him rightly. All right? And so let's begin by looking at the tabernacle, what I'm calling communion with God. God is pitching his tent on this earth in this tabernacle so that he can commune with us. Now, have you ever purchased a piece of furniture from Ikea? Any hands out there? And the furniture comes with a book of instructions, right? You open the box and everything fits together, all packaged neatly and tight in there, right? And in there is this like this this uh, this um, package that has all the all the screws and the washers and the connectors and all this kind of stuff. And then there's a booklet. And you know, the, the question is this: Sometimes we look at that and we're like, I don't need to read that book. It's just too confusing. There's too many details of what this is. This is screw A, B, C, D. This is A, A, B, B, C, C. And you just kind of go through, and it's just, it ends up being a mess. And so what you end up doing is like, look, I've, I've built furniture before. I put stuff together. I can do this. And so you start saying, oh, this goes here, and this goes here, this goes here. And my question would be, if that is what you have done, how did it turn out for you? Probably at the end of building this piece of furniture, there were extra screws and washers and things. You don't even know what they are. Or you're wondering why your furniture is kind of like wobbly and not sturdy. Why? Because you haven't followed the instructions. You haven't taken time to do the hard work of reading the book and, and figuring out what the procedure is and how to actually make sure that this piece of furniture is supposed to go together. That, friends, is how we often approach the study of God. We try and figure out who he is and what he is like without actually looking at the instructions. Or it's, it's how we often approach the study of God's word, what he has revealed to us. God has revealed himself and his will in the pages of his word so that we might know him in order to worship him. But sadly, we see the instruction booklet and we're like, well, this is just too tedious. This is just too much work. I have a kind of a general idea of what God is like. And so I'll just, I'll just be sufficient with that, right? And as a result, we're guilty We don't necessarily realize it, but we're guilty of creating a God with little g 
of our own making. And there may be some similarities to the God of the Bible, but it's not actually the God of the Bible because we haven't taken time for the actual Word of God to feed us and to instruct us and to guide us. It's not that we have an Ikea God, but we are often Ikea worshipers. Now, when we come to God's Word and to sections like the one that we just read, where it's so full of of detailed instructions, I want to encourage you, friend, to do the hard work, work and to look, first of all, for the structure or the way that the, the, the instructions are organized. The author, God, is not just going bleh. He actually is giving specific, I don't know how to spell bleh, okay, if you're taking notes, but he's giving specific instructions about specific things. He has an order to what he's saying because he's trying to make sure his instructions are followed. So I want to encourage you to fight through your feelings of, or laziness, or even the questions you might say, like, you know, does this really, really matter? It's not that big of a deal. And instead, take time to find the joy in what God is revealing. At first, it may be overwhelming. I understand that. But once you understand the big picture structure, it makes the whole passage come alive and helps you understand what's going on. You see, you know, people who are building buildings, they, they follow blueprints, right? You've probably seen them on these big desks, you know, big blueprint, all these different details. And if you jump into a section of a blueprint, really having not had much experience with a blueprint before, you're like, what's that? Oh, is that a room? What's going to be in that room? Well, a person who knows how to read the blueprint, they can tell this is going to be a bathroom, this is where the shower is going to be, and all this kind of stuff. Why? Because they've taken time to learn it. And God has given us his blueprint. And his blueprint is a wonderful thing. And so if if the builder just says, you know what, I don't like blueprints. That that house is not going to be that good. And here's, here's the point. The finished product is the result of the blueprint being followed, being understood. So here we have this wonderful blueprint of the tabernacle here in chapter 26. And God wants his tabernacle to be built in a certain way. So this is blueprint, this is a floor plan, and, and, and it screams at us two things, hospitality as well as holiness. You see, all the details scream to us of God's holiness, that he is separate from us, so stay away, right? Walls, uh, veils, curtains, but it also speaks to us and screams to us of hospitality. He desires to meet with his people and to speak with them. And so he's inviting us to come. So you get the picture. God is saying, come, come to the tabernacle. But when you get there, stay away. (laughs) This, however, as you remember, is God's throne on earth. So first of all, I want to talk about the location of the tabernacle. Again, when we take a look at the tabernacle from a bird's eye view, what we notice is that there are three spaces. You see a diagram there in your handout. It's probably up on the screen. But there's the courtyard, which would be the bigger area. Then you have the actual tent in the middle, which is divided into two areas. There's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place, all right? 
So this is, this is the location of it. And when we use the, the word tabernacle, typically, you know, if someone's just casually talking about the tabernacle, what we typically mean is the whole complex. But this particular text is not talking about the whole complex. It's talking about the tents. And the word tabernacle is used here. It's talking about the tent that is in the, that complex, which includes both the holy place and the most holy place. And friends, what should strike us is something beautiful and amazing about the character of God. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. And as such, his dwelling should be or deserves to be the most magnificent palace that man can build. And yet, he is eager to condescend to his people with humility to dwell in a tent. And the reason is so that he can be present with his people as they sojourn through the wilderness. And the tabernacle will be his earthly dwelling for the next 420 years until the first temple is built by Solomon. I want you to think about this. As you probably read with me along as we've gone through these different different, pieces of furniture, notice that they're all portable, right? Everything is made so that it can be packed up and carried and then set up again. And if God had a permanent dwelling in this area, and Israel's going through the wilderness, then where would he be? No, he wants to be with them. He wants to be portable with them. So it's not just the fact that he's come in a tent, but it's the the fact that the tent can actually move with his people. I mean, God's humility and foresight is incredible, isn't it? And when we open our Bibles to the New Testament and read about Jesus, here's what we find uh, the Apostle Paul saying in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Talk about Jesus here. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus here demonstrated his humility by releasing his grip on heaven and coming to earth and identifying with humanity. So the location just speaks and points ultimately to Christ. Secondly, I want you to notice the details of the tabernacle. And there's really three groups in the structure of what he's revealing here. The first group are the curtains, all about curtains. Some of you ladies will love this section. I understand that, right? Um, Love your curtains, but all these wonderful curtains. And in this section, uh, this is all taken up with construction of various types of curtains, various sizes, but the way they're joined together and the loops and the rings and the poles that are all going to be used to connect them together to form walls and ceilings and ultimately to create this rectangular tabernacle. Now, it's worth remembering that the curtains were constructed not to keep people out of the presence of God, but to protect the people from the presence of God. It's really important because we often approach the Bible in a a me-centered way. And what we need to remember is God is doing this for our benefit. He's coming to dwell, but we can't handle him. 
Now the curtains were thick and layered so that the, the, both the holy place and the holy of holies were pitch black. They used fine twine linen, goat's hair, ramskins, goatskins, and the only light came from the golden lampstand in the holy place. To this day, the, the Bedouin nomads use goatskins stitched together as a protection for their portable dwellings. Now what we can say is that the tabernacle was a replica of heaven. And there are two hints at that in our text. First of all, just all the mention of the colors. When you think about heaven, you think about all these wonderful, incredible colors, don't you? But in our text, right, the the white or off-white linen, the blue, the purple, the scarlet. But you also have the presence of these cherubim, which we've seen before, we've talked about. The cherubim are, are the angelic beings that stand in the presence of God. So you have all these curtains that need to be constructed. Then you have in verses 15 through 30, the frames for the structure, because these curtains have to hang off of something. So here we have these frames with bases made of silver and tenons, which are connector pieces that solidified the structure of the tabernacle. Now this was a skeletal structure of sorts that could be put up and torn down for travel. And the curtains would attach to these frames with clasps and tenon. A tenon is, it would be the equivalent to like a, a timber joint where, where the connections would come together with, these, with these, um, these poles. So like a tongue and groove or a dovetail. But there are two interesting facts that, that remind us of the need for atonement in the tabernacle. Notice, first of all, that the bases are made of silver. Right, but you just understand the progression that we have in this whole unveiling of what's happening in the, the greater tabernacle. What's happening in the Holy of Holies is just gold, gold, gold. Although there's maybe some silver there, but it's mainly gold, right? And when you, when you start to move out, just at the tabernacle proper, there is these silver bases. You say, what's significant about that? Well, because a little bit later in Exodus chapter 30 and verses 11 and following, God instructs Israel to take a census tax of silver, which was used ultimately to make the bases of silver for the tabernacle. But here's where it gets interesting. That census tax was to be paid to the Lord by each person as a ransom for his life. Interesting. This tax was referred to in chapter 30, verse 16, as the atonement money. So the atonement money of silver is used to craft the silver bases which are foundational for the structure and of the frames of the tabernacle. In other words, a communion with God is only possible through atonement. It's foundational to what's happening here. It's just a very interesting way that things are weaved through the storyline here of this blueprint that God is giving us. So there's the silver bases. But there's also another interesting aspect that's going on here, and that has to do with Eden. You say, what do you mean? Well, Eden, if you want to remember, is this is what well, heaven on earth looked like. Right? So it's helpful here to, to note where the entrance of both the holy place and the most holy place faced. They both faced east. Now, the reason this is significant is because the entrance of the Garden of Eden also faced east. Eastward. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told that after Adam and Eve sinned, that God drove them out of the garden and placed the cherubim and the flaming sword at the east 
of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. And then in Genesis 4, we see Cain murdering Abel, and it says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So, to go eastward is symbolic of going away from God. And so the way to actually travel toward God was to move westward. That's why we're in California. <laughs> I waited all week for that. Right? But you get the point here. There, there, there's symbolism happening. You've got to be careful now, you know, not to, not to force symbolism into things. But when you, you see the connections of Eden and all the things that are being said here, there's a way in. There's a flow of worship that is taking place through the, the entrance, through the entrance to the tabernacle, and ultimately through the veil into the, uh, the most holy place. So we can say this, by, by situating the tabernacle with its entrance facing east, the Lord reminded his people that their sin had resulted in their being driven away from his presence, and the only way to get back into God's presence was to go through the flaming sword, to go through blade and fire. Or to put it in the language of our text, the only way back into God's presence was by way of sacrifice, where the blade of God's wrath and, and, the, and God's consuming fire are poured out on that sacrifice. So here we have the frames for structure. And then we also then want to look at the veils for separation, the veils for separation. And remember, the tabernacle tent is divided into two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. And of course, in the most holy place is where, is where the Ark of the Covenant is with the mercy seat, which is really the, 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 the throne of God on earth. It's that symbolic place where God meets with his people through a mediator. Now, between these two rooms, separating these two rooms, was a veil described for us in verse 31 of chapter 26. Notice what it says. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Verse 33, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. Now listen to the next phrase. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. Now the word veil has as its root the idea of to shut out, to exclude. And also, according to the Jewish Talmud, the veil was not just a linen cloth, but was a curtain that was four inches thick and took multiple priests to actually pick it up and to move it. And friends, this screams at us exclusion. It's a barrier. It's a mechanism of exclusion. It says, you can't come in. And there's something strange going on here, isn't it? There's a dissonance taking place here. We're excited and electrified by the fact that God is saying, I want to dwell with my people Israel. I'm creating a way where I can do that. Just, just think about the, the wonderful reality of God being in their presence. Yet, the most holy place the place where his glory shines out is closed for 364 days a year. In fact, the entire human race is shut out 
of the most holy place. Only once on the day of atonement, the high priest went in to make atonement for Israel. So friends, these sacrifices, this going in, all of them were only temporary appeasements. They ultimately had no power except to appease God in a temporary way year after year. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews says this, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The whole thing raises Israel's hopes of communion with God only to fail to deliver on the fullness of spiritual intimacy and fellowship with their maker and their redeemer. The, the, the way to the most holy place was closed except for one day a year. So sacrifices went on year after year, first in the tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem. Each year, the high priest would be, go behind that veil and make an atonement. But then the next year came around, and he'd have to do the same thing. It was just a fresh sacrifice, year after year. And friends, we have to understand what's going on here. The, 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 the gruesome routine of bloodshed rolled ever onwards until one day. Until that one day when the precious Lamb of God hung on the cross and breathed his last. And then Matthew 27, verse 50 tells us the veil, this four-inch thick and 15-foot high veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. Now, friends, that's not just a bunch of guys going in there and say, pull it, somehow creating this thing. It's not some little linen cloth that you you can just pull, like from your sheet or something like that. No, this is a huge, massive veil. And so it was symbolic, but it was, it was symbolic in a powerful way because it's screaming, look, the need for this veil has been removed. There's no longer a barrier. There's no longer exclusion. When Jesus said, it is finished, the way to the most holy place, flung open for every child of God with his death on the cross, no more sacrifice of blood was needed. He is the one to whom all those blood sacrifices pointed. All the lambs, all the rams, all the bulls, all the ghosts sacrificed the years, uh, all those years, they all pointed to the one true sacrifice whose blood actually and truly atones for sin. He was the sacrifice once for all. Now friends, I know we know this. This is not new to us. But it's worth hearing it coming out of the context of the tabernacle to see what God was doing and how it ultimately is pointing to Christ. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says to us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The connection there between this curtain that is through his flesh, when he was torn on the cross, the veil was torn, opening up this access now. Now you might think, what a privilege it was for Israel to have the, the, the tabernacle in their midst. To have this this beautiful uh, dwelling of God, to see, get up every morning to see, that's where God dwells. That's where God dwells. What a privilege. Now, friends, hear this. Because of Christ, our privilege is so much greater. 
Israel lived at the border of blessing compared to what we have in Christ. But because of Christ, we can go all the way into the most holy place with boldness and confidence. And so there is communion with God through Jesus Christ. The door is open for you to press in and to know God so that you can worship God. The communion of God pictured through the tabernacle. Secondly, cleansing from God, picturing what's happening at the altar. Now we're in chapter 27. In particular, verses 1 through 8, where Moses is instructed to build this bronze altar that would stand outside the tabernacle in the courtyard in plain view of the congregation. And just like the other pieces of furniture we've looked at, this altar is essentially portable, and it's a bronze fire pit made of acacia wood, complete with tongs and utensils. But let's think now about the significance of the altar's location. What we need to notice, first of all, about its location is this. It was the very first thing that you would encounter as you walked into the tabernacle area called the court. In other words, it confronted you as you came in. And it was screaming at you with a clear message. One sin must be dealt with before you go any further. And the way you deal with that sin is via the blood of a sacrifice. Now notice that it had four horns on each corner. According to Leviticus 4, when the priest offered a sacrifice, he would kill it at the entrance to the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. He would then take the blood and throw it seven times against the, uh, the holy place, or the most holy place. Sorry. He would, he would yeah, seven times against the, the curtain that separated the most holy place uh, from the holy place. And then he would smear the blood from that sacrifice on the horns of the altar. Now, in our, in our minds thinking, we're thinking that the sacrifice somehow was on the altar. No, what would happen is, I mean, imagine getting a bull and trying to lift it up to this thing that's seven foot high. It was killed at, at the gate. It was chopped up, and then the pieces were put on there to actually consume it. Okay, so just our, our picture and vision of some of these things is a little distorted. All right? But that's, that's, the, that's the location. It's significant. You cannot go into that place without first being confronted with this altar. Secondly, notice the significance of the, of the altar's sacrifice. What we need to see here is that this process was brutal and gory and, quite frankly, rather stomach-churning. It would not be something that you would want your children to watch on TV. All right, it's, it's, this is for a mature audience and very mature audience because most of us, if we were to watch it, because we've grown up in the city, we would probably be vomiting on the floor. It's vile. It's awful. It's gory. It was not a beautiful thing to look upon. The animal would scream when it was killed. The smell would be awful. The blood of the animal would be covering the priest's hands and his arms, and it would be on his clothes, and that blood would bake into the horns of the altar. Now, friends, it's, it's supposed to be that way because it's a powerful graphic. It's an ugly reminder of the sinfulness of sin. We don't think that our sin is that sinful. We don't think that it's that ugly. 
We think our, our sin is a mistake or it's some small deviation or uh, it's a personal shortcoming. It's not, uh, or it's simply a bad decision or that wasn't me. Of course, the question is then who was it, right? No, if you want to know your true condition, the true horror of your rebellion and sin against God and what it costs, you look at this picture. You take a glimpse of this picture. It symbolizes our sin. And friends, the symbolism of our sin does not compare to the reality of our sin. So even the, the, the worst gory picture that you have depicting the sinfulness of your sin doesn't do justice to how sinful your sin actually is. Now think of Jesus hanging on the cross as the sacrifice, torn, broken, consumed by the fire of divine wrathful judgment. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Just, just pause on that for a moment. When you think about how this is, this is pictured through a sacrifice, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. It is harder to depict visually what Christ suffered spiritually because we can't comprehend the sinfulness of our sin, the magnitude of God's wrath, and what Christ actually bore as the substitute hanging on that cross. Friends, are we truly aware of the horror, the filth, the ugliness, and the sinfulness of our sin? All of your guilt, all of it, all your shame, all of it, all your sins, every one of them, every one of them over the course of your life, every evil thought, every evil act of rebellion against God, every matter of hatred or bigotry or selfishness or anger or sinful fear or anxiety, all of it, every bit of that filth of your sin, he took on his shoulders. He bore it all on his shoulders, on a tree for you. And then God's sacrificial knife, his total wrath against sin, fell on his only son, the son whom he loved. And full atonement was made. Not partial, not temporary, but full and complete atonement was made. Friends, it's powerful, isn't it? The significance of the altar sacrifices. This is ultimately what it's pointing to. But I also want you to note in, in, in this text, there's this mention here about the, the, the horns. Because this, there's also a, a safety of the altar's refuge. See, it was also by virtue of the cleansing of the sacrifice to be considered a place of mercy. Because it's through that sacrifice that you, you are enabled to actually experience that mercy. And it would become a place of refuge, in particular, for someone who had been accused of a criminal offense. And you would run and you'd hold on to the horns of the altar seeking refuge. And what would happen is that you would then come before the elders who would hear your case and make a right judgment. Now, if you're guilty and you're holding on to the horns of uh, you know, of, of the, the altar, you're guilty. And you're going to be 
judged accordingly. But oftentimes people were, were not guilty and they're looking for a place of refuge and they needed to be heard. So friends, this altar is saying to us that if you run to Jesus, you will surely always find sanctuary, a place of refuge and mercy and pardon for your sins. And that in order to approach the throne of God, you must first offer sacrifice to make a temporary atonement for your sin. You must be cleansed before you approach God. And it's a reminder of what the scriptures say in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So with the bronze altar, the people are confronted with their sin and reminded that they can approach God only because of blood. So we move from the cleanse, or cleansing from God now to this last section, what I'm calling community before God. We looked at the tabernacle. We've looked at the altar, and now we're looking at the court. So this is Exodus 27, 9 through 19. Again, we have this daunting list of curtains and pillars and bases and hooks. And, and what they're, when they're taken together, they form this, this curtain wall or fence, so to speak, around the tabernacle uh, with an entrance gate, making a courtyard where this bronze altar would be situated. So let's th think, first of all, about the layout of the court. And let's make sure we get a picture here. The courtyard was about 150 feet um, long, and about 75 feet wide. Of course, inside it sat the bronze altar, which would have been that first object that you would confront. And then it also surrounded the tabernacle tent, which consisted of the two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. Now, it's worth connecting the dots here between Exodus chapter 24 that we looked at a few weeks ago, where um, Moses goes up the mountain, they begin with the covenant, and some go up the mountain, if you remember, part of the way, and then Moses goes further up the mountain. If you get this picture, you get this, this layout, what you'll see here is that there's a parallelism to what's happening on the mountain and what's happening here in the tabernacle. Because, see, the courtyard was where all the people gathered for worship, just like the people gathered at the foot of the mountain. This is where the covenant was made. Everyone who is a part of Israel can go into the court, but only the priests can go into the holy place. Only those particular leaders. And just like only the elders of Israel, those, those chief elders, we're told, are able to go halfway up the mountain. And it's only Moses then that can go actually into that place where God was dwelling on the mountain, in the clouds, if you remember. And here in the tabernacle, the same thing is true. Only the mediator, that high priest, can go in. You see, what's different is you have this mountain that was stationary. And God transitions from the mountain where he was meeting with his people now to the tabernacle where he's meeting with his people. But you have this flow of worship that is still taking place. It's still there. So God is establishing a permanent but portable place where all Israel can come to meet with him. So secondly, after looking at the layout, let's look now at the worship that's taking place in the court. Here in the courtyard is where Israel was allowed to enter. And, and it is in this courtyard that the people of Israel would gather together for worship and praise and sacrifice and communion with one another and with God. And this is a place that is talked about in the Psalms. Just let me read these Psalms. You know them, but listen carefully. Psalm 96, verses 7 through 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his what? Courts. 
Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. It's talking about what's happening here in this space. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and in his, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. We have Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your, what? Dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs yet faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And of course, Psalm 84, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I just want you to get here. The, the, the courtyard was not just a place for people to wander around with their, their goats and lambs and stuff. It was a place where Israel gathered to praise and to celebrate, to be the, this, this community together. But as I mentioned, and as you see with the dimensions, it wasn't very large at all, was it? How could all of Israel possibly over, or potentially over one million people fit into the courtyard? That would be a tight squeeze. They certainly wouldn't be social distancing. Now, later in the time of Christ, the tabernacle had been replaced by the permanent temple, and three additional courts had been added to the temple. There was a court for the priests, there was a court for the men. You probably, if you've ever been to Israel, you've seen that. There's a court for the women of Israel. And there's a court for the Gentiles. These additional courts were not part of God's blueprint and only created further division among those who worship Yahweh. If you remember when Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple, he is in fact cleansing this court of the Gentiles that had become the place for the buying and the selling of stuff. And here's what Jesus says. This is Mark chapter 11, verse 17. And hear it carefully. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for what? All the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. We might think that they're offended by the, You have made it a den of robbers. But that contemporary Israelite attitude may have been far more offended by the fact that Jesus is quoting an Old Testament section that says, you have called, uh, you, your house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Not just Israel, for all the nations. Just let that set in. The court farthest away from the most holy place then was this court of the Gentiles, and a very welcoming sign hung over the entrance from the court of the Gentiles into the rest of the inner courts. Here's what it said. Anyone who enters here will be killed. That message is pretty clear, isn't it? You Gentiles are not welcome. How do we get from all the nations to, well, if you're a Gentile, this is where you but the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, seeking to address this problem, says the following. And just listen to this, Ephesians chapter 2. This is really, really important, friends. For he, that's talking about Christ, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's speaking about Jew and Gentile. He 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall, the dividing wall of hostility. He's speaking in reference to that wall, in my opinion, that was there in the temple. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So get this, through Christ, there is a new sign hanging above the door, and it says, whosoever will may come. It doesn't say stay out. It says, come to me, all you are who, who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. It says, come, there is room for you in the household of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a picture of the church. We're all connected together. We're male, we're female, we're rich, we're poor, we're Jew, we're Gentile, we're slave, we're free. Now that Christ has come, he has made us all one and we're connected to Jesus personally, but also to each other corporately. There's a profound community that exists as the body of Christ that gathers for fellowship, praise, and worship to receive the word and to rejoice together. That is the church. And this is what God has called us to. Now, I want you to pause because it's interesting the way that the Lord has laid it out. He's taken us from the tabernacle to the altar to the court. But I want to think of this a little differently, just backwardly. Because what would happen is you'd come into the court and what would happen? This is where you could dwell, but you're confronted with this this altar. And of course, that altar meant you need to be cleansed from your sin. And you could not even go anywhere near unless you were cleansed from your sin. So the way of worship is coming in through the sacrifice and ultimately to the place where God dwells. Having said that, as we bring things to a close here, one of the themes that kind of rises up out of this text is the reality that our lives can be full of barriers, things that hinder us from actually fully coming face-to-face with God through Jesus Christ. I'd like for you to consider them, just some barriers that may be present, first of all, in your relationship with God. You may be a child of God or you may not be a child of God. If you're not a child of God, the barrier then is your sin that is not paid for. It's been paid for unless you... You know, ask for forgiveness. There's a transaction that needs to be made. There's a, there's a confession. There's a humility. There's a repentance. It is your sin. That is the first place you have to begin. But if you're a child of God, then you can still have these barriers between you and God. It can be fear. A lot of people are experiencing that right now because of COVID. They're saying, what am I going to do? I'm going to continue to exercise fear. Or how am I going to step out a little bit more on faith and just trust that God is at work? It can be a barrier of rebellion, saying, God, I know what you said in your word, but I, I am not going to do that. Or it can be a barrier of unbelief. And I've talked with many people in the counseling context where they're just not sure of their salvation. They're not sure that, that they're actually God's children. Why? Because they don't believe that God actually has forgiven them. And these are barriers. Ultimately, it's sin in general, isn't it? And, and part of God's purpose here is to say, look, will you listen to me? Will you trust me? Will you believe me? I want to help you 
to rid yourself of these barriers. And part of that's just our Christian walk, isn't it? Secondly, the barrier in your relationships at home. Anger, bitterness, selfishness, abuse, just conflict in general. All of that hinders us, not only in our relationships, but ultimately still in our relationship with God. Then there's these, these, this relationship you may have at church where you're, you're working with someone and, and you're trying to figure something out and they might say something that you kind of thought, well, that's kind of weird, they're kind of being rude and all that kind of stuff. And you have all this kind of weird stuff going on, right? These things happen. Or maybe you're ministering to someone and the ministry is hard or someone is, is sharing their heart with you. But they, they find you to be a, an open listener and so they're sharing with you and it just seems overwhelming to you. Or you're feeling just overwhelmed with, with life and, and in particular maybe a carrying out of ministry. Oh, there's been a lot of that going on, friends. Just what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? You know, just this past year, where are we going to meet? How are we going to meet? Are we going to meet? All these questions. And as leadership, we're like, yes, we want to meet. How are we going to do it? I don't know. Let's pray about it. And God just opens doors. These are all challenging things, friends. And your relationship in society, man, we have been squeezed. Society is trying to take us and just force it to say, you will comply. And I'm not just talking about COVID. I'm just talking about ideologies. There's a mocking and ridiculing going on. There's this cancel culture that is prevalent, and, and it's focusing in particular, kind of in a side way, against those who are Christians. Now, friends, the way forward is Christ's way of worship. Blood through Christ, and ultimately that results in Rest. And I want to draw your attention to a verse that I just partially quoted earlier. You know it very well, but I want to draw it to you again, and that's Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor. You guys tired? And yet we have it pretty good compared to the rest of the world throughout history, don't we? Come to me, all who, who labor and are heavy laden, burdened down, right? And I will give you what? It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Following Christ does mean putting on a yoke. <laughs> it means putting on the, 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 the yoke that he is your Lord and master, and he speaks into your life. But he's saying, when you do that, I will lead you into rest. Now, be careful here. Don't say more than the text is saying. What the text is saying is, I will give you spiritual rest. In other words, you see life differently now because you're listening to me, you're following what I'm saying, and you're saying, yes, you're having all these difficulties and struggles, but if you do what I'm asking you to do, you can rest, you can be at peace. My friends, we need that. And so what, what we have here in the context of these two chapters is a way, it's a path for our worship. And that path 
goes through sacrifice. Of course, for us, that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And through Christ, then we are able to come face to face with God. Not by ourselves, with him at our side as our mediator, as our advocate, as our savior. We come boldly to the throne of grace. That's the way of worship. That's the way of rest. That's the way of peace. Lord, help us today. Help us to be able to step back and to see, Lord, that even in the thick of these details that you've revealed, Lord, that you are still communicating to us, Lord, the beauty and the wonder of your gospel. Why you would, even here in our text in the Old Testament, condescend to Israel. I mean, why, why wouldn't you, Lord, just stay on the mountain where it would seem this is where gods dwell. They dwell on mountains. And yet, you condescend a little further into this confined space, the Holy of Holies. And Lord, it, it changes your people. You are present with your people. But Lord, it screams your redemptive plan. That your son, Jesus Christ, would tabernacle among us. And he would live his life on this earth, not as an example, although he was an example, but Lord, knowing that he would go to that cross and he would die sacrificially and be that sacrifice once for all, that we who put our faith and trust in him can find rest for our souls. Lord, help us to chart your path for the way of our worship. Help us, Lord, to not to bypass what we think is a non-essential, but to follow your careful instructions that you have laid out on the mountain and that you continue to lay out through the breathing out of your words so that we can understand what it means to be in communion with you, so that we can understand what it means to be cleansed by you, so that we can understand what it means to be a community that's gathered together to worship you. Oh Lord, we long for true spiritual rest. We know that we will eventually arrive there when we stand in your presence and glory. Lord, give us strength, give us hope, give us perspective, give us fuel, Lord, for this journey. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Can we please stand for our closing song? May the words that we sing continue to remind us that as we reflect on the message that Pastor Rod has brought us this morning, that it is not through, through I, through ourselves, but it is through Christ that we can find that peace. Let's sing these words. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteous and my freedom. 
My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. For this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to strange and divine I can sing all is mine yet not I but through Christ in me the night is dark but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. For this I hold my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead oh the night has been won and i shall overcome yet not I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future should, the price it has been paid. For Jesus fled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. I hold my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can see I am free, yet not I. I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me, until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, 
yet not I, but with Christ in me. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory ever more to Shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. today that we cannot live our life without the power of Jesus Christ at work in us. Lord, we thank you for your willingness, Lord, to come, to guide us, to shape us, to save us, Lord, to help us. Um, we are so unworthy. And yet, Lord, you promise that through you, we can live a life for your glory with your help. Lord, may we seek to do that this week. May our time in the Word today and our time in song be, be a resounding uh, reminder. May the, maybe the melodies and the echoes of what we have been doing this morning help, Lord, to shape us and to guide us, to grow us in our faith. Give us wisdom and discernment, Lord. We praise you for who you are and our desire is to glorify you. Lord, may we do that faithfully in your precious holy name. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.